0: Rewind 20 years or so, and the conventional wisdom held that America was doomed to be dependent on foreign countries for its supply of fossil fuels, especially regimes in the Middle East who are hostile to us. The companies working in the fossil fuel space were commonly seen as short-sighted and working to exhaust domestic supplies until we run dry. Essentially, they were blamed for worsening the problem. And yet since then, something astonishing has happened. Domestic output of oil in the US has increased dramatically while net petroleum imports have plunged to the lowest levels since 1991. And for the first time in seven decades in 2020, the US was a net annual exporter. So how did this happen? To understand the dramatic transformation in the US energy space, I'm joined today by someone who has had an inside view Nick Deulis is president and CEO of CNX Resources. CNX is a leading independent natural gas development, production and midstream company with operations uh, centered in the major shale formations of the Appalachian Basin. And uh, CNX I believe has more than 4,400 producing gas wells. Uh, So Nick is also the author of a new book, Precipice. Uh, Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that too in the conversation. So I'm eager to talk to you, Nick, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm really pleased to be able to talk to someone with the wealth of experience that you have. Uh, So we're speaking now, it's it's, uh, early April 2022. The war in Ukraine is raging. Uh, There's been huge uh, tumult with the price of energy spiking all over the place. And this is at the same time that we've seen, as I was saying a little bit earlier, that the, the US energy sector has really been blossoming for the last decade or two and despite that blossoming we're hearing that we need to move away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. so there's a lot to talk about and I hope we can get to to all of those things so I want to start by zooming out a little bit and talking about the industry because in preparing for today I realized uh, just appreciated just how little understood this industry is and how unappreciated it is given the transformation that has happened so I wanted to start with that issue but just to get a sense of who you are and introduce you maybe you could tell us a bit about your background how you got to be at the helm of CNX and sort of your experience in the industry
1: that's a great question because uh, it's a story that parallels what's happened to the the region uh, that I've lived in my entire life which as you mentioned is Appalachia specifically western Pennsylvania uh, in the Pittsburgh uh, region and that story was one where, of course, it was a, a manufacturing and industrial base for, for decades that did all kinds of wonderful things for free enterprise and for individual rights and for societies and economies the world over, not just the United States. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, which was when I was a a, a child basically and, and coming into sort of my teen years, uh, the region just went through a, a, a very drastic a uh, downturn with, with a lot of devastation, personal devastation, as well as economic devastation. Families uprooted, uh, the region sort of uh, ripped uh, apart in many different ways with respect to its fabric. And then uh, down the road, starting probably in the uh, early 90s, later 90s, uh, then came along what everybody references as the shale revolution. And this sort of uh, resurgence of the energy base Where originally, historically, it was more of a a coal-based type of an industry in this region, now moving to natural gas, basically resurrected, for lack of a better term, the industrial manufacturing economic livelihood of this region. Provided a lot more economic opportunity, a lot more uh, ability to achieve those types of things, And, and I was a beneficiary of that because of innovation, because of disruptive technology. So I've been able basically to live my entire life, ironically, and by choice, frankly, within a five mile radius, largely because of what free enterprise and capitalism were able to deliver on behalf of of the wider region. Without those things and without the the doer and the achiever and the innovation that went with it, a la the Sheryl revolution, I likely uh, would have been in a very different place than I am today.
0: Yeah, I understand your background is so you started off in engineering, chemical engineering, and you have extensive experience as a business leader, and you also have a law degree. So tell us a bit about your educational history. How did that come about? Were you interested in going into law, and then or was it chemical engineering? Is your first love?
1: Again, uh, you know the the journey was uh, somewhat by by chance, um, by trial and error. Uh, I was the first in my family to attend college. That wasn't uncommon uh, for people of my generation in this region, again, going back to its roots, uh, a lot of individuals, a lot of families uh, were immigrating from Europe or from different areas of the the world to come work in this region, because at the time, all you would need would be a work ethic and the the ability or the drive to go achieve. So uh, it wasn't uncommon to see that this would be sort of my generation being the first to contemplate things like a college education or a university degree and at the time i enjoyed math and i enjoyed chemistry but again i didn't have anybody in my family social circle etc that was able to to mentor or advise with respect to a college experience or a profession post college and at one point someone said well if you like chemistry and you like math what about chemical engineering and that was basically the uh, the genesis and the rationale for pursuing that degree and upon achieving it of course like uh, like many graduates coming out of uh, of university didn't have a good feel for what a chemical engineer actually did, and and learned that once again, fortuitously, but by trial and error in industry, uh, working in, in the economy, and as I continued to progress, gave a thought to getting more involved in the business or finance side of what was occurring with the company I was working for, the, the same company I work for today, and pursuing a, a master's degree in business in the evening while I was working uh, full time, and then. That was a good experience, Uh, progressed my career further. And I said, well, why not try that again uh, with law school at night uh, while I was working full time? And I would have to say in hindsight, that probably was a bit of a miscalculation because law school uh, I'm sure would be an interesting uh, endeavor and working professionally is an interesting endeavor. To do them both together might be asking a bit much over a three or a four year period, but I made it through and uh, that's how I, I sort of got to where I was at with respect to, uh, to, to my education.
0: So let's talk a bit about the shale revolution. So uh, I don't know very much about uh, shale. So sh- if I understand correctly, it's a kind of rock formation. Or and then what has happened in the last few decades is that there are new ways of extracting uh, fossil fuels out of it. So gas and oil. So is, is that right? Am I sort of on the right track there?
1: You you basically uh, summarized it beautifully, and it's the greatest story that's never been told. That That's sort of the uh, the view that I have of what's occurred. The, the shale deposits, which, as you said, are, are basically rock deposits uh, underneath the, the surface, thousands of feet uh, deep. We always knew that they were there. We always knew that they held prolific amounts of methane or natural gas. Uh, and in some instances, depending on where the shale horizons are, across the United States may also hold oil or petroleum. But the technology to be able to drill horizontally and the technology to be able to fracture the rock deposits to provide channels to liberate the methane and natural gas or the oil, those were the things that were lacking. And what had happened through just classic innovation and classic entrepreneurship under under the, uh, the principles of capitalism and the free market, you had basically risk takers that were looking at investing and basically trying different technologies and refining those technologies and then further developing and evolving those technologies to the point where the drilling techniques for horizontal drilling and the completion techniques to fracture those rock seams became so efficient that the natural gas or oil that was liberated from that process created very attractive rates of return. And as you see with most disruptive technologies when they come on the scene, not only do they disrupt, they often become victims of their own success. And what I mean by that is that because you can now produce such vast quantities of natural gas or oil at very low cost, then the supply grows at a much faster pace than demand can catch up to, at least in the short and intermediate term. And you had basically a drop in the price for natural gas and for oil, which benefited, of course, all kinds of consumers and downstream industries. And since everything, utilizes in some way, shape or form the carbon atom and things like the methane molecule, there is no such thing as the zero carbon economy. That is a myth. Then everybody will benefit to more prolific supplies and lower costs of those those feedstocks. So again, that helped catalyze this downstream resurgence of manufacturing and other types of uh, industries, not just within Appalachia, but all over the United States. So it is very much a classic innovation, disruptive technology entrepreneurship story, no different than what you see with some of the classic tech stories, but it was applied uh, with respect to sort of an old line, so to speak, industry in a new way where we always knew the deposits were there, but now we had technologies to be able to go get that in very economically profitable uh, and efficient ways. And I might add, all this was done ironically, but to me, not to a surprise, all of this was done not just without the support of government but in many ways, in spite of government. In other words, government policies were very much designed and wired to prevent this very thing from happening, but nevertheless, it did.
0: So I want to just talk a bit more about, you mentioned uh, fracturing the rocks and so forth. So that's uh, hydraulic fracturing, it's commonly known as fracking. And I think the other technology that I've read about is horizontal drilling. Both of those sound really complicated. I just want to get a sense of like, for a layman's perspective, um, what kind of tools go into this when we talk about horizontal drilling, how far are we drilling sideways or horizontally? And is this a a labor intensive? Is this more machine led? Just to get a sense of how, what the technology is involved here.
1: It is very much a high technology industry and a high tech industry that, uh, that relies heavily on not just the current state of the way things can be done, but an evolution, a refinement, a progression of that technology. And the way to think of it in its its most basic um, terms is that basically you're drilling first vertically from the surface anywhere from, depending on the the shale horizon that you're looking at, anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 plus feet in depth vertically. And then through that vertical section, you are starting to slowly turn a curve to then drill horizontally for another 5,000 to, in some instances, 15,000 plus feet horizontally in a shale deposit. And when you're doing that, you're steering that drilling where you're trying to stay in some instances within a five foot zone over those 10, 15,000 plus uh, horizontal feet. So it's an amazing technology, technique, et cetera. And the ability to utilize and harness technology from all kinds of other industries and all kinds of other different applications, but to then sort of you know customize it with respect to what we're doing in this industry, that leads to not just the, the further increased efficiencies in what you're seeing per well or per, uh, per pad that you would be drilling with multiple wells on it, but also it's changing uh, the way that you're looking at things with respect to replicability. So the inventory of what is economically extractable over the life of a shale field, let's see, let's say, or a, a horizon, let's say, um, that becomes much deeper, and that's important because when you have replicability and an inventory depth that is economic under any sort of reasonable price assumption into the future, that further helps, as I said, catalyzes downstream investments in downstream industries. So that's why you saw in areas such as Western Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh here, just past the the airport, Pittsburgh International Airport, there is now uh, a petrochemical facility uh, that is being constructed, multi-billion dollar project by Shell. And the reason, the primary reason why it's being built here is because one of the most, uh, one of the highest uh, feedstock costs to making the product that a petrochemical facility will produce is ethane and, and ethylene and the feedstocks, again, from a lot of the production from wells that are being drilled in this region. So when they saw the petrochemical entity or industry, or Shell in this case, saw decades of this supply being able to be delivered to that plant in close proximity, literally right underneath the plant itself at very attractive prices, then that makes for good economic returns for the petrochemical plant. And then of course that gets constructed And then when that starts to produce its product, all the subsequent downstream manufacturing entities that utilize its product will then sprout up alongside of it. And again, you have capitalism and the free market off and running, and that does wonderful things for economic inclusion, for the middle class, for achievement, for all kinds of things uh, that are follow on benefits to, to allowing these things to occur.
0: So what I'm hearing is that there's a tremendous amount of innovation and technology that makes possible the extraction through the from the shale uh, reserves, and that without that it wouldn't be economical to go in. You would have to dig deeper wells and go in there. Maybe you couldn't do it. So it sounds like there's a, a sort of an unseen technological uh, progress here. That, you know, we're we're used to thinking of technology and. You know, the smartphones we all carry, that's where we think, oh, this is so technologically advanced. And, and it sounds like th- there's that kind of innovation, but we, we just don't hear about it. Um, I'm curious, there's even uh, sort of a, a, a different view of fracking in particular, which is reading the newspaper, you'd think fracking is a uh, highly dangerous, highly risky kind of activity. And I, I imagine there are risks involved, but I just want to get a sense from your perspective what kind of risks are involved? Is it as dangerous as we've led, been led to believe? What is the profile there of that kind of activity?
1: Energy policy, uh, energy decisions, energy portfolios are very much like uh, the, the world in, in terms of real life. There are no magic silver bullets. Everything has trade offs tied to it, risks and rewards. When you look at energy policy and you look at energy choices, what is going on with respect to natural gas and specifically domestic natural gas production manufacturing whatever you'd want to call that the risk reward balance is far far superior to any other energy options that you would see within your portfolio including not just of course the displacement of things like coal and coal fire generation which i think everybody agrees with and and natural gas has proven that because if you look at everything from sulfur dioxide to mercury emissions to nitrogen oxide emissions and to carbon dioxide uh, we have basically gone through and you don't hear a lot about this but the region of Appalachia the state of Pennsylvania the eastern United States has gone through a massive decarbonization over the past 20 years because the shale revolution has made natural gas more prolific, more cost effective. And on our power grid, it has displaced coal. So if Pennsylvania were a standalone nation of its own, it would be the only country today that it would have met its Paris Climate Accord targets. And it didn't do that because of subsidy. And it didn't do that because of mandates by government. It did that because of the free market's innovation with respect to natural gas. So you start looking at, uh, say, natural gas versus coal, it's clear. What people largely don't understand is the same sort of comparison and risk reward math when it comes to natural gas and the energy mix versus things like wind and solar, i.e. what would be powering those smartphones, what would be powering those electric vehicles on the grid. And what people don't realize because it's been marketed this way, it's been indoctrinated this way, solar and wind, are far from zero uh, carbon sor- emissions, uh, sources of electricity and energy. They have quite large, and in fact, sometimes very egregious carbon footprints. And just to put this in perspective, if you look at a location such as Pennsylvania, and it changes depending on on where you want to assess, but to basically choose between a natural gas fired power plant versus, say, let's say a wind farm in Pennsylvania, because solar doesn't work very well here. Unfortunately, it's not very sunny here all the time. You would need somewhere around 300 state of the art uh, wind turbines to replicate the nameplate capacity of a single natural gas fired power plant. Now, those turbines largely like solar panels, the stuff, so to speak, to manufacture it could be rare earth, could be different minerals or compounds or elements. Those are largely in places that are not the United States, at least in the quantities that we would need them at to have wind or solar be a significant part of our electrical grid. And typically those places are in instances, locations such as Russia, such as China. And what happens is they're basically mined under significant surface disturbance with a tremendous carbon footprint, they're mined using carbon, they're processed using carbon. They are then used to manufacture component parts in carbon fueled factories offshore And then they then have to be transported, typically on the back of carbon, whether it's gonna be a ship, a train, or or a plane. And then when you get them here, if you need 300 state-of-the-art wind turbines to produce that electricity, you need to clear out 300 plus pads. You need to fell trees, you need to fell right-of-ways to basically create the transmission lines for each and every turbine that has a carbon footprint. And then, oh, by the way, when the wind isn't blowing, you're going to need backup reliable power source which is typically not just redundant and carbon intensive, but typically it's going to be carbon based. So you add all this up, the carbon footprint of something like wind or solar at scale is is very large. And you're actually increasing CO2 emissions if you're looking at things from a cradle to grave life cycle analysis, as you should. But what the environmental movement and what certain policymakers and ideologies and certain centers of academia want to warrant is that they're only looking they're pretending as if the carbon footprint only begins once all of the 300 wind turbines are in place and running and and when the wind is blowing and that of course is is flawed uh, math flawed science uh, flawed accounting when you're looking at your carbon accounting so the environmental records and risk and rewards the cost implications of energy which are massively important because energy touches everything Um, and the overall impact with respect to economic freedom, GDP growth, uh, those types of things, it's a pretty clear picture as to which option, if left to itself, if left to the free market, if left to science and sort of economics to dictate, which option is going to be the prevalent one within an energy mix. And that, of course, would be natural gas. But what we've done, of course, is we've wired things in a very different way ideologically, as well as from a policy perspective to come up with a very different set of outcomes. And those outcomes are going to have consequences intended and unintended they are going to be very serious and very negative across wide swaths of the economy and society.
0: So I want to turn to that now because uh, one of the issues that we've become really aware of in the last few weeks with the war in Russia, Russia's war in Ukraine is Europe's uh, dependence on Russian uh, fuel supplies. And one of the things that has become more obvious is that just how dependent so, so a lot of the, the European countries are farther along the road to abandoning fossil fuels. they're moving towards renewables and so 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 forth. And in, in that, as you were saying, that, that creates a kind of dependence on backup systems. So if the wind doesn't work, we need something else. Um, so I remember, I, I grew up in the UK, and I remember that drilling in the North Sea for oil was a big deal. It was happening throughout the 1980s, um, but that stopped. And what else has stopped is that, um, that whatever resources there are in it, that European countries can extract they're not pursuing that as avidly or, or at all. In fact, I think they're even decommissioning some of the nuclear plants, all with the idea of moving towards uh, wind and solar. And I think Germany is at least 50% reliant on su- supplies from Russia uh, for its uh, fossil fuel needs. And it's very dependent. It's got to moved very far towards the renewables. So I want to understand a bit um, from what you were saying in terms of the economics of it and the science of it it the there's a kind of theater going on like it, it can if, if we do all the math correctly then renewables are not nearly as appealing as people make them out to be so just this take one concrete um, example so a lot of people are buying electric cars and the way you're describing it is the electricity for that car has to come from somewhere. And if the grid is mostly carbon, carbon based, then how is it that we can think of the electric car as as supposedly as green as people say it is? Because it, it, it doesn't really add up. Maybe there's more to the science that, that I'm not aware of, but how, how do you think of that? And what makes it economically viable to have a car like that?
1: Well, you're on to something. Um, there's a lot of issues to unpack there that you've highlighted. Uh, by the way, the, the car itself, it doesn't just run on carbon when you look at the science of it. The car itself is made of carbon, carbon-based products uh, inevitably down the road. But, um, pun intended, I assume. But the the whole issue with Europe and the issue with EVs, they actually do mirror one another. So if you look at Europe from an energy policy perspective, and then we can sort of superimpose that on EV and, and policies that we're driving electric vehicles uh, with Europe, they basically started with this myth, as we discussed, of a zero carbon economy being possible via things like wind and solar. The assumption that wind and solar are zero carbon emitters of of power production, which, again, is, is untrue. But if you start with that premise, then what you start to do, and, and by the way, that premise is backed up behind it with an assumption of almost a religion, a zealotry, that we, you know, the the end of days are near and we must save the planet and we need to act now and it's a code red for humanity and all those buzzwords that you hear. But there's a zero carbon sort of underlying principle or or belief within the religion. So then you start to set policy and what Europe did is very similar to what we're going through now. They basically said, as as you mentioned, let's shutter and shut down all of our domestic um, natural gas and oil fields and coal mines, et cetera. So let's, let's close all of those. Then let's also retire all of our power plants that were designed to utilize natural gas or coal or nuclear plants, et cetera. And then let's run to a expen- exponential growth in things like wind and solar generation. And when you set that as policy, which Europe did country by country and as the EU, suddenly uh, the reality of math and science take hold. When it's the dead of winter or the dead of summer, and the demand for power is very high. And now you have shuttered all of your domestic supply fields and you've shuttered or retired all of those power plants and wind and solar can only provide so much output. Now you need something to satisfy the mathematical equation for for power demand or the lights go out. So what they did was they relied on the only possible thing that was left. It was the plug, so to speak, in the equation, which was Russian natural gas. And right now Europe gets 40% of its natural gas from Russia by design, by simple math. And as you said, some nations like Germany, it's even higher. So when that happens, a few things occur along with it. First off, Russia realizes that Europe is suddenly dependent on it for its supplies. So it's been a huge beneficiary of these climate change policies, as has China, which we'll get to when we talk about electric vehicles. Um, Secondly, the price for that product that you are now relying on from Russia has gone up because you've basically, um, destroyed the supply. You've, you've tamped down the supply through your policies, making it scarcer, and thus the price of it has gone up. That emboldens entities like Russia or Putin even more. And then Putin takes a look at that situation geopolitically and says, I now have much more leverage than I've ever had. And if I want to look at something like the sovereign state of the Ukraine and I want to change that, what is going to stop me if I feel emboldened because I basically have geopolitical leverage in the form of energy, not security in the case of Europe, but energy insecurity, they are reliant upon me. And I believe that Putin, uh, as bad as that situation is with Ukraine, he is a, a consequence. He is a symptom of an underlying problem. He's a Frankenstein, so to speak, that was created. And what that underlying root cause is are climate change policies that led to this situation. Because if that energy insecurity didn't exist, and if Russia didn't feel emboldened geopolitically when it came to energy matters, I believe that the ability, the confidence to try to invade a sovereign nation like the Ukraine would have been much, much different. Now that's Europe with Ukraine and Russia. You mentioned electric vehicles, the same situation, but just an order of magnitude larger is occurring when you look at wind, solar and electric vehicle mandates. Because again, going back to the reality, the science of these things, the stuff that you need to manufacture an electric vehicle, a Tesla, to basically create wind or solar at scale, as we've mentioned, much of those materials must come from, must be mined and extracted in places like China, in places like Russia, and then they're going to be processed there. They're going to be manufactured into components there, and then they'll be shipped here. So when you look at mandates for electric vehicles or you look at climate change policies or grid subsidies for wind or solar, protected markets, those types of things, not only are they just classically bad from an economic perspective and from a free enterprise perspective, and not only does it do harm to consumers and create things like corporate cronyism and and, and corporate crony capitalism where they're basically becoming more of the successful entities are the rent seekers right the successful entities are not the innovators and, and the ones that have disrupted things with new technology now you are basically creating what was an energy security situation which is a a geopolitical advantage for entities like the united states and those that defend you know individual rights and republican democracy and now you're trading that for a reliance on not just your transportation fleet, but basically what's fueling your transportation fleet, the energy grid, to places like China and like Russia, and they are very strategically astute. They've, they've figured this out to the full extent, just like we have, and they will not, I fear, be uh, fearful of you know, utilizing that new leverage um, to its maximum advantage. And what that means? I don't know. We saw what that means with Ukraine and Russia. What does that mean for Taiwan and China? What does that mean for the South China Sea? What does that mean for individual rights? Uh, what does that mean for the developing world? Probably not very good things.
0: So I wanna talk a bit about the the domestic scene now with, um, so we, we have both a strong push for moving to renewables and mandates for electric cars, I think, a, various companies are announcing they're gonna move their fleets to electric vehicles. And at the same time, and I, I take your point that there's just a, uh, a really bad calculation in terms of how people think about these, they're, they're not quite what they're being sold as. And at the same time, there are uh, obstacles thrown in the path of the sort of work that your company does, which is bringing, Um, natural gas for people out of the ground and and to to make it useful. So I'm interested just to get a sense for what would it take? So we've seen a tremendous flourishing in the energy space in the last 20 years. What would it take for that to continue to grow? What what are some of the things that you'd like to see uh, pushed off the road? What are the obstacles that you're seeing politically uh, and in policy that but for these, there could be a real blossoming or even more than there has been
1: already? Great question. Uh, I think there are three uh, key arenas where you see uh, these attacks uh, via via policy, uh, via the the way things are structured with regulation uh, that really hinder the ability of the domestic energy industry to to achieve to its maximum capacity. The first one is the one that's been around the longest and I think that um, the people are the most familiar with and the industry has been become the, the most adept at managing, which is are, are regulations that are designed to either reduce the supply of natural gas or domestic oil and or increase the cost of extracting it. So this has been around for decades and decades, of course, and it continues the march uh, toward that, continues to tighten to again, reduce supply or increase costs. But the industry through innovation, ingenuity, et cetera, it is basically outpaced the pace of regulation, which is hard to believe because that's saying something considering how um, how widespread the whole of government can be these days uh, in that type of an arena. But the second and third ways are, are much bigger concerns, at least from my perspective. And they're newer, they're newer developments that have become uh, more prevalent on the scene lately. So the second one is looking at not necessarily the supply or the cost of extracting natural gas or oil domestically, but instead is aimed at sort of eliminating uh, deterring the ability to invest in infrastructure to transport that product to its end demand centers so examples of this would be banning pipelines natural gas pipelines from pennsylvania to boston or pennsylvania to new york where there's major demand for that product and then ironically areas like boston end up importing liquefied natural gas from russia so instead of a again the same sort of math that we spoke about with europe when demand goes up and there's no ability for wind or solar to fill that void. You need something to plug it. If there's no pipeline to deliver that natural gas um, from Pennsylvania, then you trade that off for a 4000 plus mile supply chain from Russia. Um, It's things like not allowing new housing developments to have natural gas hookups to those new homes. And of course, it's things like not allowing uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG facilities to be built here or at different offtake centers in Europe that would basically allow that infrastructure to continue to link up the supply with the demand for your product and to globalize the market, to do it in a way where it's the most efficient allocation economically that, uh, that you would see. Um, the third, and that's, that's ironic, that second way, because what is most of the talk from Washington these days and from the current administration, it's infrastructure. And here mm-hmm. we are purposely trying to deter stop prohibit infrastructure investment in the free market Uh, it's it's ironic in many ways the third way um, is quite serious it's the newest Um, it is probably the least understood by those not in the energy space and that is the either through direct regulation or indirect regulation and policy starving this type of an industry of its access to capital so basically turning off the different financing avenues to finance uh, to to fund, uh, to grow businesses and endeavors in, say, domestic energy. And you see this in the form of the Federal Reserve uh, when they're talking more and more about things like climate stress tests. So, you know, the Federal Reserve has done such a great job with monetary policy and inflation that I guess now it can solve the weather in, in 50 years. But you see that with climate stress tests where they will Basically, set these stress tests to effectively send a message to major banks and lending institutions that you may be able to, to, you may be allowed to lend to, say, domestic energy, but we will make it so prohibitive to your balance sheet that you're not going to want to. Um, you also see this with a lot of ESG talk and ESG reporting requirements that the SEC is considering and bantering about for public companies. Again, that's another sort of. Uh,
0: let me let me just break in there. So for people unfamiliar, what does ESG stand for?
1: Well, it depends on, on who you ask um, ESG under okay. its its uh, normal parlance is environmental, social governance. So these are this is uh, sort of the offspring of uh, doing well by doing good. Um, sort of that thought where public companies in particular are increasingly uh, being assessed and judged not so much on financial performance or Not so much on the type of innovative technologies they're bringing to bear and the demand for those products um, or technologies, but more so on what the scorecard subjectively, of course, looks like when it comes to environmental or social or governance matters, which can basically include just about anything under the sun. And again, they're very subjective. What is good ESG uh, to you might be very different than what is sound ESG management to me but the largest institutional shareholders or shareholders of public corporations, of course, will get the most say in those matters. Now, some say ESG, if done wrong, and oftentimes it is not practiced properly, uh, stands for enabling shareholder or stakeholder, more specifically stakeholder graft. Um, That was one one tag of it. Uh, Because again, if not done in the correct manner, if not tying back to the underlying efficiencies and performance metrics, that drive the true financial performance and health of the company, of the endeavor, then you're leading to to very um, sort of uh, quizzical answers on this that don't make much sense. And and we've seen many examples of that. But ESG is just a subjective way to basically uh, deem a certain industry or a certain company worthy of access to capital and a different company or a different industry, you can subjectively deem it to be not worthy of having access to capital or access to capital at much, much higher cost, triple, quadruple the cost of what a a worthy entity would be able to access capital at. So when you play that out, what happens is, again, if you're uh, looking at something like domestic energy, you will basically look at either a very much higher cost of capital, which is the lifeblood of any type of capital intensive endeavor, or worse yet, no access to capital. If these three things continue to occur, those three avenues of attack, you know, pushing down the supply versus what it would normally be under a free market, um, basically stopping or deterring the ability to allocate that product to where the demand centers uh, are are asking for it, and then sort of starving these industries of capital, the follow-on effects are gonna be very obvious. They're going to be inflation, they're gonna be scarcity, and since carbon and energy affect everything, in society from smartphones to tech to transportation to everything then the cost of those things are going to start raging as well and wouldn't you know it sitting here in april of 2022 the united states and the globe is experiencing you know epic inflation across a whole host of basket of indices first and foremost being energy it's not a coincidence
0: i i want to be conscious of your time. And I appreciate your joining us today. So a couple more quick questions, and then we'll wrap up. So one is uh, it hasn't, doesn't seem to have as much momentum right now with other things going on. But you know, we've heard for a long time that we need an, a Green New Deal. And one of my colleagues has written about this and his analysis was that if we took seriously the Green New Deal, it would really undermine and undo a lot of the human progress we've seen in the last century. And I've heard you speak in other contexts and you've said something that I thought was, I liked it, I thought it was very pithy. I just wanted you to elaborate on it. And it seems to to be consistent with this. I think you've said that to be anti-carbon is to be anti-human. Uh, I hope I'm attributing that, that, that statement to you accurately. And if that's your, maybe you could just elaborate what you mean by that.
1: You're exactly right. I did, I did say that, I do say that. Um, and this goes back, to a couple of things first the reality that and this is something that's not very well understood across society but carbon affects everything carbon is not just something with respect to oil that you put in a gasoline-powered vehicle okay it basically is a feedstock with clothing it is a feedstock with respect to plastic and plastic is used in everything including to store food it is a feedstock in fertilizer Natural gas is the single biggest cost component to manufacturing fertilizer and the cost of fertilizer recently has skyrocketed, which means the cost of food will skyrocket. Um, basically carbon is used in everything, not just power generation. And because of that, if you start to look at what has advanced the human condition throughout history, since the start or the advent of the industrial revolution, the data are unequivocal. It's, It's true time and time again. When carbon utilization increases in a nation or in a society or in a region, very, very good and important things happen to the human condition. Infant mortality rates plummet, life expectancies skyrocket, individual rights flourish. And you can look at that data time and time again across all kinds of different nations, continents, et cetera. The corollary is also true. When we've seen instances in Eastern Europe uh, in the prior USSR are prime examples of this, when access to carbon has been lost because of economic turmoil or disruption or geopolitical events, the exact opposite things occur. Infant mortality starts to climb up, life expectancies decline, and really bad things start to happen with totalitarian governments and individual rights. They don't flourish. So we know this to be the case. And when you look at those three avenues of attack that I spoke about with supply, with not allowing infrastructure to deliver to the demand centers and with access to capital being under attack, here's how I think of that with respect to uh, that other often bannered uh, phraseology out there, the social purpose of a business. Right. I'm much more of the Milton Friedman view of things where the primary purpose of a business is to deliver a return to efficiently optimize the return for its ownership. But of course, the way you do that are through things that some might consider to be ESG um, centric. So I think there is an overlap there. But when you look at what happens with respect to our why, why we exist as an industry or as a company, we are providing quality of life. And if you start to deter our ability to perform, to achieve, to do, then I think of three major stakeholders out there that would be beneficiaries of our industry that are going to suffer. First, I think of those within this region. And again, whether it be the middle class, whether it be those aspiring to make better positions of their lives or their families uh, through economic achievement, those are going to be severely hindered. We've seen that, as I said, in the 70s and early 80s in this region. We will see it again because this is just one of those bedrock industries where that type of an avenue to progress and to progress individually exists. Um, Two, I fear very much, if this continues, things like the Green New Deal, et cetera, what that means for allies, uh, for Republican democracies like Poland, like Western Europe, like Japan, uh, even places like India, who are looking at the geopolitical reality of these things and saying, I need to be a big supporter of, say, the United States domestic energy industry, because if allowed to flourish under normal free market economy uh, doctrine, I will be able to reduce my geopolitical risk by having a a more secure energy base versus where I may be having to rely upon, whether it be Russia, China, et cetera. And then three, the third major stakeholder beneficiary of this to me is the most pressing. Almost two billion people on planet Earth right now do not have access. reliable affordable electricity and energy and for those almost two billion people life is not a pretty uh, journey it it is very stark it is very harsh because energy again it is the human condition and if you start to pursue policies like the green new deal you're basically assigning the current generation of those almost two billion individuals to a life that's going to be mired unfortunately largely in misery and from an ethical perspective Uh, I think I've got a a real problem with that, uh, coupled with the reason or the way that we're doing that, which is very counter to capitalism, free market economies, and basically the individual rights that this nation was built upon.
0: Nick, I I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Obviously, your company seems to be thriving. Well, It's really impressive, the, the work you guys are doing. But just beyond that, I wish there were more leaders, business leaders like you, who who stood out and, and spoke out in defense of their own industry, in defense of the values that the industry is creating as sort of political implications. So I just wanna salute you and, and thank you for doing that um, and ask where, what can people find out more about your thoughts and your views uh, if they wanna explore more your perspective?
1: I appreciate the uh, the thanks. That means a lot, uh, especially coming from from someone such as yourself and, and with the organization that you represent. I've, I've been a huge supporter and follower of it through the years. Um, going back to, of course, the, uh, the teachings of, of Ayn Rand. But if you want to learn more or follow uh, me, I welcome those who are interested to do so. I did create a website uh, just over a year ago. It's nickdeolius.com. Um, Deolius is D-E-I-U-L-I-I-S, but nickdeolius.com. If you Google it, you'll find it. And we, I post on there uh, regularly different commentaries, et cetera. I do have a book that's out now. You mentioned that. It's Precipice. Uh, the left's campaign to destroy America, it talks a lot about these themes uh, that we're speaking about uh, today. And, uh, and I'm active on, on social media to a certain extent. I'm on Twitter, at Nick Diolius, if you wanna follow me there. And I do welcome the, uh, the feedback, uh, agree or disagree, I, I do welcome the public discourse.
0: Great, well, thank you, and well, well, uh, wish you well with the book. I haven't had a chance to get my own copy, but I'm looking forward to dipping into it when I do. Uh, thanks for, for your time today.